Pick it up with me, if you would, please, in verse 28. Verse 28 says this. And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when it came to pass, when he came near Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite of you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Well, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those that were sent went their way and they found it just as he had said to them. And as they were loosening the colt, the owners of it said to them, well, why are you loosing the colts? And they said, the Lord has need of them. Then they brought him to Jesus. When they threw, I'm assuming that's the donkey and not the owners. So, and they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they said, Jesus on him. And as they went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as they were drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King, Melech, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially, in this your day, the things which make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. As he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, for all that could be said in this time, I pray that your words would be said. God, I pray that for every heart here that you would speak to us, every ear, that our minds would truly be informed, our hearts would be enriched, and our spirits would be drawn to you, that there would not be, God, there would not be one person in this room that escapes your voice today, that your word would penetrate, would cut, would slice open, would, would splay, and in doing so, God, that, that we would find ourselves then finding your strength over ours, find ourselves surrendered to the God who loves us and wants us, the God who cries out to us, and today, Lord, may we find transformation. May we find, Lord, freedom. May we find the liberty that comes with your spirit. May we find the abundant joy that comes with your presence. May we find the peace that you are, Jesus, as the Prince of Peace. And I pray today, God, that your word would burst open and come alive and we'd have so much fun in it as we grow. So minister now, I pray. Lord, please have your way. Anoint me afresh and anew. Immerse me that you would be seen. And in that now, Lord, be exalted and magnified. Save, challenge, encourage, equip, warn, bless. 
We commit ourselves at every second of this to you. Redeem it all, I pray. In the name of your Son, Father, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Over a hundred years ago, when the plants in the fields of the South in America, songs would rise. The songs were the workers who had been stolen. They had been commandeered. They'd, they'd been, well, they'd been captured, kidnapped from another country and dragged to America to work in the fields. It was the tobacco fields. It was the cotton fields. And the people would sing songs. And the songs were songs of freedom. And they were normally in traditional spirituals, call and response. So we'd go, freedom. And everyone would go, freedom, freedom, freedom. Oh Lord, oh Lord, bring me freedom. And they would call back and forth. And this would be their song. Now understand, they were in chains. And they were dragged in chains. And those chains were so clear and so obvious that it was the only chain they could see and it was very much staring them in the face. The freedom was from their captor. The freedom was from their master. The freedom was from the person who would beat them if they hadn't picked enough or grabbed enough or taken enough. You could still see the same thing today. Uh, Today it looks a little bit different. It's a 22-year-old girl stolen from, from Russia, dragged out of her house, by a group that say they know where her family is now, stringing her up, strapping her down, and forcing her to, injecting in her heroin for a week so she gets strung out and addicted, and then forcing her to do tricks. It's in India. It's a little child somewhere that has gotten beaten, and beaten worse because the people who run the child know that the more abused the child looks, the more money he'll get. And it's the same thing. It's a child crying for freedom. Now, you may not hear that song, But because the chains are so obvious, because the pain is so real, it's the only one you see. The problem is, it's temporary. Even if it is your whole life. It doesn't make it less. It doesn't make it less painful, but it is temporary. The Jewish people had theirs too. Turn to Psalm 118 for a second. If you're not familiar with Scripture, if you close your Bibles and open it up in the middle, it's a pretty good possibility you'll find yourself in the book of Psalms. It's the largest book at 150 of them. And you get to Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, where we get things like, this is the day that the Lord has made. Pick it up for a moment in verse 22 with me, would you please? In verse 22, it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we'll rejoice and be glad in it. And it always always kind of strikes me a bit odd. Could you imagine if you take that same spiritual back in the day when people were actually singing with marks from beatings, and actually now you just turn into everyone kind of going, freedom, freedom, hey, oh Lord, bring freedom. Hey, you know, and the reason I say that is we do that with, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, right? And we kind of do this thing, but the song was not that kind of way, because Psalm 118 was a song crying for freedom. Notice what it says in verse 25. 
Save now, I pray. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, I pray, send now prosperity or deliverance. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And interesting, among the Jewish people, there's another call and response. It's a very traditional way of singing. One would sing a line, and the congregation would repeat it back. So try this with me, if you would. Ready? Anadonai. Try that. Anadonai. Let's try that again. Anadonai. Your turn. Anadonai. Aveshiana. Aveshiana. And then they sing. Anadonai. Your turn. Anadonai. And that's what you just sang. They sang, save now, or hear first. Hear God, or save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray. Send prosperity. And then, Baruch Hava, Baruch Hava. And that's the word for Vashem, which is the name Vashem. And this is blessed is he who comes, Baruch Hava Vashem Adonai. And that's Adonai, the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now understand, when people sang this song, if you ever go to Israel, and, and by the way, pray if you'd like to, we're still debating on whether to go in January. Now, when you go there, you go to the Wailing Wall. Understand, even to this day, if you walk by the Wailing Wall, people are, it's not called the Crying Wall or the Sobbing Wall or the Teary Wall. It's called the Wailing Wall, and wailing's much different. Wailing is a very, very loud, heartfelt, gut-wrenching cry. And when you go there, people still sing that song. They still cry out. Because they're crying out for a chain that is so before them but not the one that lasts forever. You see, according to this, the idea is that there's going to be a rejection of the most important stone, the one from which the entire building is based on. That's a marvelous thing. It's extraordinary in our sight. And the day that God has made that, we will cry out, Oh Lord God, please save. Now listen, it is really easy to want God to save you from financial despair to save you from whatever emotional shootout you're in to save you from the bondage of an addiction and by the way fair enough those are things which the lord would love to meet you at but listen not in the sense of what god wants and this is the problem in all of that what god wants is a permanent solution to your problems i mean do we feel good these days when you see the homeless person that you know is going to be spending that money on crack and you just threw them a tuppen and you think that makes you feel better because somehow you temporarily relieved the moment? You know better than that. Listen, if I could sort of title this, it's why close isn't good enough when it comes to our king. You see, they were crying out, God save now, but what they were asking to be saved from, well, there's the problem. And they were saying send prosperity, but the prosperity that they were seeking was not the one God wanted to give. If you think that the best prosperity God has to give you is financial, you are ripping God off. And if you think that the best deliverance God has for you is to remove from you just 
the problem you're struggling with, with pornography or with or drugs or with alcohol or whatever it is, you're ripping God off. Those are chains, but they're temporary chains. And if you were delivered from every one of those things but ran headlong into hell, it doesn't bring God great joy. See, my God plays for keeps. And because he plays for keeps, though he's interested in those things, he dwells from a perspective of eternity. And because he dwells from a perspective of eternity, that's what he wants to see reconciled and dealt with first and foremost. And we could surely have that kind of lifestyle where what we do is we run to God at those moments when things are a little rough so we could get another hit from God so we could feel a little bit better with life. And God's like, but you are mucking with eternity here. Back in our text. And let me walk you through a little bit of it. Because people wind up singing this song. Blessed is the king. Jesus already, listen, listen, listen. John in chapter 6 tells us that Jesus had fed 5,000 men and their families and we read as a result of that in 6.14 that the people were going to go and make him king by force because he had for the moment quenched a temporary hunger. Did you get it? The next chapter, Jesus stands up and speaks at the great feast. Now, this is the Feast of Sukkot, of of Tabernacles. And at this particular feast, during the water libation, when people have fasted from water, and he stands up and says, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. And everybody there is thirsty. And that's the point. He had already told us in John 4 that we have a well to choose, the one that we'll always have to keep going to, or the one that will permanently satisfy. And the people say, There's the prophet! Deuteronomy 18 told us that there is one that's going to come after Moses and that prophet, oh, that prophet, we have to look for him because he was a deliverer. He'll be a deliverer like Moses. And that's what we want, deliverance. We think, wow. But what they were looking for at the moment was just satisfaction of their temporary thirst. And you know what happens? There we are struggling with God because somehow he isn't meeting the temporary hunger because we're not interested in meeting the most important one. And we find ourselves still thirsty because we went to Jesus once for a sip somewhere instead of chosen to dive in. Now, but from that point on, things radically, radically change in John. They try to kill him, but his time hadn't come. They try to lay their hands on him, but his time hadn't come. Uh, king him, crown him, or stone him. They can't seem to figure out what to do with him. Kill him or crown him. But his time hadn't come, and now we get to this point where he tells us his time had come. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus set his eyes to go to Jerusalem. And as he does, he starts to this beautiful process of which a majority of the text from Luke 9, 51 through the beginning of 19 is almost, well, there's a good portion of it, but the majority is exclusive material to the Gospel of Luke. In that, in that information, by the way, Jesus is constantly focusing on two things. And as, as soon as he goes, it's time to head to Jerusalem, boys. You can almost hear the foreboding in that. He wants to head through Samaria and Samaritans don't let him through because they know that Jesus and his boys are going to the feast as every other able-bodied Jewish man is. And the boys say, do you want us to call fire down from heaven like Elijah did? Jesus' response in verse 56, it's 9.56 says, that the Son of Man had not come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. I think you're missing the point, boys. 
In chapter 10, he sends out the 70. They have power over demons, and they're all buzzing over that. And Jesus says, glory not that demons are subject to you in my name, but rather that your names are written in heaven. You're missing the point again. In chapter 11, then he starts to speak about a spirit driven from a house. Speaking that of a human being. And he says, when that spirit comes back and finds that the house is in order... It'll get seven worse than himself. And I tell you, the condition of that house will be worse than before. Oh, a temporary fix, yes. But because the temporary fix only put the house in order, it's worse than it was before. Don't miss the point. The temporary is not what you're going to do. It just does not satisfy. The world is built to erode and fall apart. But chapter 12, he says, listen. In my sight, this isn't just about Numbers, every hair on your head is numbered. That's how important you are to me. By chapter 13, verse 34, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How long I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers then her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now see, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I said, you shall not see me until, you, until the day comes or the time comes when it says, when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By chapter 14, he tells us that we're going to have to leave everything to follow him because he left everything to get us. By 15, he gives us the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son because the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. By chapter 16, he tells us the difference of true riches and fake riches. Temporary riches, they're not real riches. Real riches last forever. And then he gives us the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show us from an eternal perspective. And through every chapter we walk through, he is constantly showing us that our God plays for keeps from the perspective and paradigm of eternity, not from the temporary moment to fix your little problem right now. Though that problem is important enough to bring you to him, that's important enough to him. He still wants to deal with your eternity. By 18, he sits the boys down. In verse 31, take a look at it with me. You're now in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. He took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem and all the things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Or they will be, he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. And they will scourge him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus did not do that to make you earthly rich. Jesus did not do that to make you earthly well. Jesus did that to save you from the eternal bondage of your damnation, which I have earned and you have earned in our sinful state. So how does that look in 19 as we get to our text? By 19, notice, by the way, in the first 10 verses, Jesus has not made it to Jerusalem yet. He's gone through Jericho. It's on our way in. And in Jericho, he meets a man who was hanging from a sycamore tree named Zacchaeus. He's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. One who won the bid to actually control the site. And with that at the end, he says, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've taken anything by false accusation, I will restore fourfold. And Jesus' response in glory, look at verse 10 with me. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you see how he's constantly bringing that home? 
With the cross in front of him, he has to have something to encourage him. If you went to the the dentist to have your teeth drilled, just to have them drilled, you would be a madman. The only reason you would do that is somehow you are convinced on the other side of that horrible experience is a full tooth, is a better mouth. Some of you will roll up a sleeve, pull down a sock, take off a shirt, and you'll hear the sound. And you are convinced, though it's pain and a needle's going under your skin, you're convinced that the artistry that's going to be on the other side of this pain is worth the effort. Anyone who volunteers for pain has an issue. On the other side of that, when you love, pain is a small price to pay. And the greater you love, the greater the pain is allowable. We're told, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Listen to that again. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So what joy is it? Could the joy be that he could look at the devil and go, ha, 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 you can't get me. You really think that's it? You think that was Jesus had as a bet to settle? Let me tell you what the joy was that was set before the Lord. You. You were the joy set before him. When someone cries out, the religious leaders, come down from the cross. If you're really the son of God, come down from the cross. And Jesus could have come down from the cross, Bam! Slapped that guy's head off like a bowling ball and then went back up on the cross. But the moment he would have done that, his sacrifice would not have been acceptable. What kept him on that cross? You did. Not out of guilt for you, out of love for you. Because he loved you so much he'd rather die than live without you. You know what's amazing is how often we could tend to think that we need another person to validate us when that's what Jesus went through to show us how important we were. It's an amazing thought. So he tells the religious leaders and, of course, Zacchaeus, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Then, as we're almost at our text, because remember, it started with after he said this, we better know what he said as our bridge. Notice in the next set of verses, then after that then, which is verses then 11 through 27, Jesus tells us a parable. And notice what the impetus is. Look at verse 11. It says that they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. See, that's what's been on their mind. Oh, they're all about having a king. They'll have the king of the loaves, but not the king of their life. They'd like that. Oh, they'd like a king who conquers their enemies, but not a king who will commandeer their hearts. And you know what? I've got to be honest with you. That's me. I mean, in my natural state... I'm very drawn to David's prayers. Break their teeth in their mouth, Lord. And I'm like, it's in the Scripture. Yeah, so are the texts about Satan. Do you want to follow those too? And you get the idea here that the Lord makes clear that there are some people that are full of passion that need to temper it, and when they don't, really bad things happen. So he says, look, if there was a king who went to go receive a kingdom, and he called ten of his workers, his, his, his employees, and he gave them all a mina, or if you will, a day's wage. And he says, now do something good with this. 
until I come back. Now, we can focus on how he holds them accountable. What's interesting is in our context, what's really brought to the surface. He says, but the people did not want to receive him. They said, we will not have this man rule over us. Now, historically, that works real well, because after Herod the Great had died, one of his sons, and by might I say probably his biggest punk son, Archelaus, takes over the area of Judea, and the people did the same thing, which Archelaus responds very much the same. Take him, bring him before me, and have them killed. And that's exactly where Jesus ends that text. Look at verse 27. Bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And then it says, and when he'd said this, he went on ahead. How's that to end a particular? You know, there are some parables that leave you all warm and fuzzy inside. This is neither warm nor fuzzy, is it? They're like, bring them, slay them. Mm. Don't have that warm feeling inside over that. Well, understand, Jesus doesn't have a warm feeling either. He's going to be bawling his eyes out by the time he makes it into Jerusalem. The big issue is, what happens when the king does come home? You do understand that the temple is supposed to be his house, right? If he really is God, and he is, then for him to go to the temple is him going home. At least as much as earth is. Now, when he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. It came to pass that they came near to the areas of Bethphage and Bethany on the mountain, which is called Olivet. Or we would know it, of course, as the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives isn't a single mountain. It's a mountain range. And can I just say, in the simplest sense, if you could draw a harp, that is the shape of the Sea of Galilee. And then you draw a line down like this. That is the Jordan. And then from there is the Dead Sea. That's kind of the idea of it. That gives you an idea. And all uh, the bodies of water help you identify Israel. You have the, the dead here, you have the med and the red. Those are the three bodies of water. Now, if you zoomed in on Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a hill, and on the two sides of Jerusalem is a valley. On one side, you have the valley called the Kidron. Can you say Kidron? That's on your east side. I'm, I'm using your perspective here. Kidron, and it means dark. And the reason is that was their sewer system. Josephus would say the blood of nearly 200,000 lambs would flow during this particular season because it's Passover. So you were walking through the sewer system. That was that valley. On the other side was the valley of Hinnom. Can you say Hinnom? Hinnom means hell. Now, I don't know about you. Let's see. I have to go through the sewer. I have to go through hell. I think I'd choose the sewer, actually, to be honest, you know. And so with that, and then you have the hill in between that we, of course, know as the Mount Zion, or we know it as Jerusalem. Now, with that in mind, just on the other side of that valley over here now is the Mount of Olives. Now, interesting, never in Scripture do we ever read that Jesus ever spent the night in Jerusalem. I don't know if you know that. We don't read anywhere that Jesus, let's face it, people are trying to kill you all the time. It's not the place to find a B&B. So what he does is he heads up, he gets up from Jerusalem through that valley, then it heads up to this mount in the Mount of Olives, because up there is the area of Bethany and Bethphage, and that's the area of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And those are really good friends of his. It seems to me that he stays with them, and who wouldn't if you were Jesus? He's got friends that love him. Now, interesting, because think about what's chock full on this mountain yet. Jesus will give this beautiful teaching during this week, by the way. He'll tell us about the last days. Besides that, on that same hill is Gethsemane, where Jesus will sweat like drops of blood. On that same hill will be a place where Jesus often meets with his disciples. We know that because John tells us that Jesus had often met there, so he made it easy for Judas to find Jesus when he brought his detachment of troops, because that was the place where they always had gone. So this was a pretty, pretty popular place with Jesus. 
It's also, by the way, the place which Jesus will ascend from. And now here he is as he descends the valley into the sewer where the blood of lambs is being slain so that the Lamb of God has to cross through that blood ultimately before these days, before this week and a half is over, before this week is over. And he tells the people, now he's got two of his guys, now which one of you would want to be on this mission? And it's easy to miss. Go and get me a, go get me a donkey, a donkey colt. Now, that's one thing, and then you go, well, where do we go? To the donkey colt store? Is there one of those? He's like, look, at, this is where you're going to go. And it almost sounds like a covert operation, right? You know, it's like Andrew and Nathaniel. I mean, those sound like some pretty good names. As a matter of fact, there's disciples with both of those. You know, look at guys, here's going to be the deal. I need you guys to head into Belsize, and just beyond great, you know, beyond Gourmet Burger Kitchen, there's going to be a Bentley. And it's, it's brand new. It's only got three kilometers on the, the, on the odometer. Okay, what I want you to do is I want you to go over there and I want you, and, and, and I'm telling the wrong guys, aren't I? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, guys. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. And, and, it's like, and I want you to go in there and I want you just to go and th- th- you'll find the keys in the, in the middle. This is not, this is, a, this is just an example. All right. <laughs> My pastor said. And, and then as you start it up, the owner is going to probably ask you, what do you think you're doing? And you kind of think, yeah, cause that crossed my mind too. And just tell him, hey, Pastor Tony needs it. And you think, really? That's what we have. That's what I'm working with here. That's it. Right? Now, who wouldn't be nervous over that? Right? And there's a part, now, let me, let's be honest. Wouldn't you hope, if you were seeking to be like, you know, I'm going I'm to seek to really, I'm, okay, I'm going I'm to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. Wouldn't you hope that when you got to Gourmet Burger Kitchen, there wasn't a Bentley out there? You'd be thinking, whew. Now let me ask you, has that ever happened to you when the Lord told you something? Now I'm not telling you the Lord told you to steal a car. I'm not telling you that, you, you know, the Lord says, hey, I've got this thing, Rodrigue. There's this person, and I want you to speak to him. And there they are over there, and you're thinking, oh, Lord, no, that's too crazy. But the thing is, is what the Lord makes clear is he's, he's already prepared this. Have you got that? He's like, it isn't like Jesus kind of went, There is a donkey over there. It seems to me that the Lord's very aware of this situation and it's already been prepped. Enough so that when someone says, what do you think you're doing? And they're like, the Lord has need of it. And they're like, okay. And you're like, really? Okay. Okay. You are the owner. Just check in. No, it's my brother. I hate him. Take his donkey. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so they take it. And what a crazy thought that would be. And the reason I say that is, look, at sometimes the Lord is going to tell you something, and when you argue with them, it must sound so dumb. And the reason I say that is because other people have given suggestions to you that were to your own harm, and you were like, yeah, that's cool. You're like, hey, let's go do this thing. We're totally going to break the law. We're going to do all kinds of crazy stuff. We're going to get totally wasted. We're going to go do this thing. We're going to be really, really lax with our bodies. Who knows what we'll wake up with? Are you in? Come on, are you in? Come on. Yeah, yeah. We're going to rob this. We're gonna... And you're like, whoa. And we would listen to that. And we don't go, well, I'm not... well, maybe we'll do I don't know for a moment. But they'll be like, come on, what are you, chicken? What if God said that? What are you, chicken? We would just say, yeah, you made me. I mean, think about it. We'd argue that with him, but we wouldn't with those around us. Well, then who do we really want acceptance from if that's the way that we play it? Now, follow me on this. So they go, and now, by the way, I want you to recognize this isn't a bunch of people that just got out of Heathrow with their suitcases that roll. This is when they started to throw their clothes. Well, what clothes are they throwing? 
Now, I'm not telling you that Jesus is being followed by a bunch of naked people. Don't get me wrong. But everyone seemed to carry around them, normally around their waist or around a sash around the back of them. They carried their night clothes. They carried that thing that was sort of the coat that you were going to wear when things got cool that you slept in. That was also the thing that you slept in. And Jesus would say, well, we see, don't we see it in Exodus, if you remember, where it says that, that if a guy gives you that as a pledge, you have to give it back to him before the night's over because the guy's going to get cold when he has to sleep. Understand what people are laying down I mean, this is, it's like, imagine if you went, you ran to your house because you heard that Jesus was coming, and you grabbed your comforter and your bed sheets, and you threw them on the street, because you'd rather have the Lord step on those. And then you, you might sleep in them tonight anyways. Now, maybe if you're like a real fanatic of someone, maybe, you know, you hear about that, some guy from some band touches your shirt i'm never gonna wash that shirt again and i think boy i hope you never wear it around me again then you know we can be that fanatic over things like that but we say that jesus is the most important and i'll be honest with you our actions often can way betray what our mouths really proclaim so get this with this now jesus grabs and he's on this colt and they, they start to spread their clothes across. Now, by the way, this is all fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. You're probably aware of that. When it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Listen, he is just. We're good with that. Having salvation. And that's what we're crying. We want him to save us. Lowly and riding on a donkey. What? Lowly. What king rides lowly? A colt, the full of a donkey? Now understand, when a king goes to battle, he rides a white steed. He rides a white steed because he wants to look like the kind of thing you can get behind. I mean, imagine, if you will, that there were, you know, on one side there's, let's say, Peter. And you've, you've never met any of these guys before. But on one side, Peter comes up and he goes, look, I'm going to put together a, a team, a sports team, a basketball team. And, and I'm looking for some guys. And on one side, there's, there's him. And on the other side, let's just say there's Mike. And Mike's like, you know, Mike's a little bit shorter, half his size. And Mike's kind of like, hey, you guys, I'm also going to put together a basketball team. Which one of those guys would you quickly run to without any other information? Now, I'm not trying to pick on Mike or Peter. But there's a reason why kings ride white steeds. Because they look like the kind of guy that's large and in charge and ready to go take things down. When a king rallies his troops behind him, he should look like he's the toughest guy on the team. If you've ever known anything about street gangs, the guy that leads is supposed to be the toughest. Normally isn't, but he says he is. On the other side of that, when a king rides on a donkey, he rides for peace. He's declaring peace. Usually, interestingly enough, when a king does that, he has made an agreement with the enemy so that there won't be a war. I mean, if he had conquered the enemy at a point like this, well, then you'd kind of think at that point that he'd ride his white steed again and go, and he'd drag the guy behind him on this big sort of victory parade that we would call a triumph. Those of you who remember the um, C.S. Lewis movie that had come out a while back in regards to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you kind of remember that moment. Imagine, if you will, that, that uh, Aslan would actually have gone into the tent, you know, spoken to the white witch, and then after that he was going to go pro- proclaim to them that the deal was done. If he were a human at that point and not a lion, because it would be really weird for a lion to ride a donkey, but if, if he were a human, he would have rode a donkey on his way out of that. Does that make sense? Because peace had been negotiated between the two of them. That's the idea. 
So imagine, if you will, here we all are. We've got our palm branches. We're throwing everything down, and that's why we call it Palm Sunday, because the idea is if the queen were coming to town, we'd want to help fill up the potholes, and that's kind of the idea. So we're throwing things down to try to make the road as easy as possible for the animal so it doesn't trip and fall, because you really don't want a king hitting the ground. He's supposed to be, by the way, a head taller than everyone else so that he shows his superiority. A bit strange, because when you sit on a donkey... Well, do you get an idea how tall that is? That makes you actually shorter than the people that are standing by you. That's an interesting thought. Now, maybe equal, but it doesn't put him a head taller than people like a king would be. And that's exactly the way Jesus comes to meet us, of course. And here we are, and we're singing our songs that we've been singing forever. Freedom, right? Freedom. Oh, Lord, please give us freedom. Freedom from my chains. Freedom, God, from my addictions. Freedom from that girl. Freedom from that guy. Freedom from whatever it is. Freedom from school. Whatever it is. Freedom from my bills. And some of you are like, oh, my heart resonates with that. And Jesus is like, if I paid all your bills for the rest of your life, you would have wished that they were all unpaid if I pay for your soul instead when we stand before eternity. Man, sooner or later, yeah, they keep coming. That's true. But sooner or later, there'll be no more bills. Isn't that a beautiful thing? But heaven isn't heaven because there's no more bills. Heaven's heaven because of the one who paid the price of all of my greatest bill. Because he paid a debt he didn't know because I owed a debt I couldn't pay. With that in mind, here is Jesus now entering into town. And here we all are crying out, We're blessed is the king. We want the king. Give us a king. Because we are so tired of Greece infiltrating our world and filling us with the, with the, the, the lack of morals. And now Rome's coming and dominated us. Oh, we're so sick of Rome. Deliver me from Rome. They're the eternal empire. And Jesus goes, no, they're not. They're not the eternal empire. They're just a big pain in the rump right now. You'll have others later. They're nothing compared to the eternity of of a life of guilt. And I wonder what it would feel like. Maybe some of you know that someone thought you were someone you weren't and because of that they like you. And you feel like, do I keep up that charade just to keep them liking me? Or do they discover who I really am and lose them? And to see like how cheap and empty that whole thing is Because they really do want a king. They just don't want the king Jesus wants to be. Can I say that again? Oh, they want a king. They just don't want the king Jesus wants to be. Now what about you? Are you still trying to get Jesus to be your big sugar daddy? Your hookup? Are you really willing to let him be Lord? Are you there? And he's just there to turn to, to kind of go give me that little extra shot forward when I need it. Let me just say, this is how Jesus responds to that. First of all, they tell him, they, the, the religious leaders are saying, tell your disciples to shut up. And he says, they can't. You don't recognize, but this is something that had been prophesied. And that becomes a real issue, by the way. And for what it's worth, I'll do this quickly. Listen, in Daniel 9.25, it says that know then and understand from the coming forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven sevens and sixty-nine sevens. Seven and, 60, seven and 62 sevens. Seven plus 62 is 69. 69 times seven. That's kind of what we get with that. And we start kind of running those things out. And I go, okay, well, what is that? Seven-year periods? Well, then I start doing the math. 
And there are many who have come to Christ just doing that math. Then I go, okay, well, one was the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. It was by Artaxerxes Langemanus. That was in March 14, 445 B.C. And then I add to that then the 360 days a year was, times the 7, that makes it for what it's worth, 2520. And then I times that by the 69, that makes it 173,880 days. So I tack 173,880 days to March 14th, 445 B.C., and that should be the day that the Messiah, the Prince, should come. Now, that's, forgive me if that's gone quick. You can review this later, but here's the simple point of it. If I do that math, that takes me then to the 6th of March, 32 A.D., which happens to be this day, just as, of course, God had promised. So when they say, tell him to be quiet, he's like, no, no, you don't understand. We've been waiting now for over 400 years for this. This is not going to be a quiet event. But that doesn't mean it's the right event. So while the people are saying, king, save, oh, we're so ready for a king, what is the king, our king, doing? Look at 41. As he drew near the city, he wept over it. Now we know twice in Scripture Jesus will weep. This, of course, is the second of them. He'd go, of course, to Lazarus' tomb. And there he would weep. Interesting, both times it's over death. And then he said, if you had known, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace. You're so busy trying to get me to go to battle, but you don't recognize the battle I'm going to go fight is for your peace. But now you won't even see it. And what would it be like to look at some place that you know is going to be destroyed by 70 AD, the entire thing, not a stone left upon another as the people flee into the temple itself and Titus surrounds it and a drunken soldier throws a firebrand into the temple and catches fire and burns them alive. The screams that he would hear. And they look and say, you realize this was avoidable. Listen, this is avoidable. And you know what really hurts is how many times you can tell someone that? And they'll look you straight in the face and go, you're right. But not avoid it. When you say, you know, if you keep doing this, you keep playing this, you can't play both sides, and you're kind of trying to make this thing up, and you think it's going to work out all right, and you're okay with it right now, you've got to stop now. And you're like, oh. <laughs> not in that sense, but go ahead and sit down. Um, and you're like, no, no, no. I see the destruction that's ahead of you. I know what's ahead of you if you keep this up. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens to every other person but me. I'm Superman. And you're like, you're going to find out in the hard way you are not Superman. She's like, this is so avoidable and you would not take it. And this is how we close it up. So when the king does come, what does he come to do then? Let me just say this, verse 45. He went into the temple. He began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. He came to take the temple back. So the first of the two things I'd say is he came to commandeer. He came to commandeer back that which was rightly his. And can I say that the king is here today? And when the king is here today, he's not here because I told him he had to be here. It tells us that when two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. Is there anyone else here in Jesus' name other than me? Anyone? Just want to make sure, as long as there's one of you, well, we're good, right? Okay, now follow me on this. Those days, there was, a, there was a temple that stood erect. And that temple was a place people went to find God. Listen, it was the place that people went to find God, and there was no other building on earth like it. No other building on earth like it. None. 
It was unique. It was different. And it was different for a purpose. Now the Holy Spirit says that that same place is you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. And people should actually go to you to find God until they find Him personally. Because you are supposed to be that. And you know what? You're going to be different. But you're different for a purpose. Stop trying to look like the rest of the world. Now I'm not telling you you can't pick a style. I'm telling you what's most important. Because if you look like all the other dead things in the morgue, nobody's going to look at you as the lifeguard. And you're thinking, but that red shirt, that really clashes. I'm kind of ruddy. Well, you know what? Wear it anyways, because when someone's going down, they're looking for red. And you're like, and I actually, I, I remodified. I kind of went with blue. I think it's a nicer color. It's a cooler color. And they'll walk right past you when they're looking for help, because they don't, well, that guy's not the lifeguard. And we could do the same thing. And I can just say this, the Lord has come today, and he's come to commandeer. And he's not come to commandeer part. When Jesus came to clear the temple, by the way, he didn't come to clean some of it. He didn't say, but leave that part dirty. That's okay. He cleared an area three by five times the length of a football field. It's a pretty big area. 1.2 million square feet. Yeah, I tell you what, he's serious. What does he need to take back over? And the things he came to commandeer and he came to cleanse. That's the second he came to cleanse. Because somewhere in there, there were some kleptos stealing from the people. There was, there was, listen, there was clutter and there was clamor. Can I just say that's what he's here to clean right now? What's the clutter in your life right now? Stuff that, you know, you got all this stuff that doesn't mean anything anymore. It's not going to be used. It's just emotional baggage it's just stuff in your life that just kind of is there but it's getting in the way in the clamor you know those things that it just gets so busy and it gets so loud you and you're like god i can't even hear you but you your ipod's turned all the way up it's like you really want god to shout i've learned this when god whispers to move us it's okay but when god shouts it's never pretty do you really want him to do that and our King has come. On this day that we celebrate the Lord coming in, He is bawling His eyes out because He knows the avoidable tragedy and you can be the ones that have avoided it. But He's come to commandeer what's rightly His. It says you were bought with a price. That body that you have is His. That mind that you have is His. That heart that you have is His. The dreams that you have are His. And He has a right to it and He has a right to tell you what He wants to do with it. And He wants to clean out the clamor. And He wants to clean out the clutter. Interesting thing is what, what's the result of it at the end. Let me end with this. So when he does, this is what it says in the final verses, and I'm going to add the last one from Matthew on that text. It says then in verse 47, notice, and he was daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders sought to destroy him, but they couldn't do anything because the people were attentive to hear him. Flip really quick to Matthew chapter 21. I want to show you what happened at the end of when Jesus clears the temple there. After Jesus drives them out, and some people actually try to use Jesus clearing the temple as a, as a, 
uh, an excuse for their acts of rage. They're like, well, Jesus did it. He flipped out in the temple. Actually, if you read the Gospel of Mark, Jesus actually walks into the temple, walks out and comes back the next day to clear it. It was a very calculated event. And this is one of the reasons I know it wasn't just him out of control. Because in Matthew 21:14 it says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Did you see that? Imagine if Jesus was just freaked out. Which one of you would say, now's a good time to ask him, can I be healed? Let's be honest. It's like, let's give him some time. Let's come back tomorrow. Listen, when the king comes, prayer is restored. That's what's clear here. God's word is heard again. Not just spoken. But I'm attentive to it now. God's presence is clear again. And there's healing. Healing to see again and to walk again. He healed those that were blind and lame. I don't think that that's by chance. Listen, when the king comes, he comes to commandeer and to cleanse. And when he commandeers what's rightly his, and he cleanses the clamor and the clutter and the kleptos out of your own life, then what happens? Prayers restored. His word is again heard, and I'm attentive to it. His presence is clear. And I can see again. And I can walk again. If I'm willing to let my king be the king he wants to be. As we go to prayer, saints, here's my question to you. If Jesus were the genie that came out of a bottle, what would you ask him? And we say, well, that's ridiculous. Jesus isn't the genie. It's interesting because the things you might ask a genie is often the way we treat Jesus, isn't it? Does it really make him Lord if we're still busy giving him our list of demands? And our timetable on those, nonetheless. It's like, here, Jesus, here's your to-do list. And Jesus goes, how about if I make you my to-do list? And you're like, I'm uncomfortable with that. Why? Because I have to forfeit control. Jesus goes, I know. But you can't call me Lord and have control. That doesn't feel good, does it? But you do realize you are surrendering to the only perfect one, right? I haven't asked you to surrender to me. That would be foolish for both of us. I've asked you to surrender to the perfect one. As we go to prayer, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and let me explain that quickly, because the greatest bondage we're in, Jesus would say, whoever commits sin is a slave to it. And the wages of our sin is death. And what we've earned is an eternal separation between us and God the Father. But God in his infinite love for us sent his son Jesus to pay the price because he was perfect and thus had no sin to pay for and chose instead to pay for ours. So he came to earth tempted in every way yet without sin. Wrote and died literally on the cross and then rose again. And my question to you is, have you accepted the gift of the risen Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose to show he has a right to be your Lord and not just your buddy, not just your bruv, 
If you have accepted the gift of Jesus, let me ask you, what has he yet to commandeer? Can we at least say to the Lord today, if there's clutter, clean it. If there's clamor, clear it. Whatever it is. If there are things stealing what you've intended to place and instill in my life, remove it. You know how dangerous of a prayer that is, right? And let me tell you why I know you know. Because Scripture says if you ask anything according to his will, we know we have it. Now, people have taken that a lot of weird areas, but we can't deny that is his will. So you know if you ask it, he's he's ready to jump on that. And that's what makes you nervous, isn't it? Because some stuff you don't want to get rid of that he wants to. But is he worth it? Is he, as the joy of intimacy between you and him, worth the pain that it will be to have that removed? Because you are worth the pain it was for him to suffer for you. And he loves you. He absolutely, undeniably, completely, irreversibly loves you. I hate to think that be unrequainted. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. And Jesus, that you would weep. That you weren't just some stoic individual that had a mission, that was duty-driven, that was task-oriented, and in that somehow you, you went, you paid the price of the cross lifelessly, and then said, all right, let's, let's go. But you felt, and you suffered, and you grieved, and you wept. And I know, Lord, in this room right now, there's a thousand stories that could be told. Stories of individuals, Lord, who unchecked could find themselves in abject destruction. And the worst of it all, in eternity without you. And Lord, right now, I pray we would hear your voice as your Spirit says today, if we hear your voice, don't harden our heart. You told us that those who seek to cover up their transgression will not prosper, but those who confess and forsake will find mercy. Lord, I pray that we would be those who confess and forsake that sin, that transgression. So Lord, I pray right now in the, the beauty of this, this moment, Lord, and the sanctity of this, uh, Lord, of this room, Lord, I just pray that right now you would speak to us. Clear the clutter. Lord, please, remove all the clamor and anything that, that is a parasite to our walk with you, that is an impediment to our walk with you that is an unnecessary weight as we seek to run the race to win it. Lord, I pray you defibrillate our spirits that we not be those who are apathetic in some form of spiritual coma about our worldliness, our duplicitive heart. God, please, today, 
for believers, God, for those who have said yes to you, Jesus, that we just want to give you permission right now to clear, to clarify, to remove. Please, God. Because we want nothing between us. Certainly you would put nothing between us. Let us put nothing between us either. And Lord, right now, you know in this room, if there be any or many who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus. And perhaps, Lord, one of the reasons you've allowed it to be cold is to postpone this baptism because there are going to be some people in the next few weeks that are going to say yes to you and you want to take them to the water too. Lord, I'm good with that. And Lord, if if that be anyone in this room, tell them that right now. Just tell them, hey, you need to say yes. You could do that, and I know you would. You want them saved. You tell us you desire no man to perish. You desire all men to be saved. You told us that in Timothy letters. So Lord, I pray right now, your Holy Spirit would just say, hey, 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 get with it. And if that's you in this room right now, and you're not sure whether you've ever said yes to that gift of Jesus, or you know you haven't, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And as that's the case, at the end, I'm going to give you the opportunity to amen. I'm going to ask you to say, do you want to say yes to this? And if you do, then I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be mine, so be it in my life. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong, I've thought wrong, I've felt wrong. I'm not perfect. You know that. And I know as a result of everything I've done and thought and intended wrong, that there's a price to pay. And you as a righteous judge have the right to punish all wrongdoing. But you and your infinite love for me sent your perfect, only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross so that all of my and anyone else's sins could be paid for. So all my guilt can be punished. So that I don't have to be punished for it. It's so astounding. It's hard to grasp. But if that's what you offer, I would be crazy to say no to that. So I say yes to not just Jesus' payment on the cross, but as He resurrected three days later, just as your Scripture promised, I say yes to Him as my Lord and give Him right to be the King of my life, the King of my identity, and the King of, of, of my value system, and the King of any and everything. Be the architect of my reinvention. But God, I surrender to You. Father, You want to adopt me? Then adopt me. That's great. If You want to purify me, purify me. That's great. And with that, I hand You my life, knowing that You are the one who can make it beautiful. So do so, I pray. May I show you the greatest act of love in my surrender. And may I from this point on choose to choose you. So here I am, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, beloved, I ask you simply to give a confident Amen.